Have you ever felt like God is far away from you? A lot of people have uh, termed this phenomenon, this feeling, the silence of God. Uh, We feel that um, God is far or not speaking to us or not communicating with us and maybe has forgotten about us. There's a, a psalm, actually, just for this situation, Psalm 44. It's a real standout in, uh, in all the psalms because of its nature. Uh, the nature of Psalm 44 is that uh, the, the person writing it says, we, Israel, are actually following you, God. We're faithful to you, God, and you have abandoned us. He says in verse 1, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days and the days of old. And later on he says, In God we've boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever, Salah. Yet you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor and do not go out with our armies. In other words, we failed. We failed on the battlefield. Yet we have not abandoned you. We have boasted about you all day long. We give thanks to your name. Then he says at the end of the psalm, or near the end, he says, If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. And the way he writes that, he's saying, We haven't. We haven't forgotten you. Nor are we worshiping false gods. Yet, he says, you've rejected us and brought us to dishonor. Now, normally when we read something like this, we're expecting as you get to the end that there's some kind of reconciliation. You know, the, the cavalry comes in. Cavalry. Cavalry comes in. <laughs> and, you know, and, and God, da, 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 and God shows up and he's like, oh, no, I was here all along. The psalm ends with a prayer and that's it. There's no reconciliation. There's no happy ending. The guy, the, the writer of the psalm says, I, I pray. We don't even know if the prayer is answered. It's amazing. But what it is, is reality. That all of us at times feel we pray and nothing. It's wonderful. It's wonderful reality. But it's also the wonderful ways and such realities that God draws us to himself. He draws us to himself. And then as we are drawn, sometimes on our knees, that we find out that he was always close by. He was always right there. But he wanted us drawing near. And this is one of the ways he does it. So we're going to see today in... Uh, our continued work in this second temptation, that God, no matter how hard it gets in these trials, God is always near. We don't have to test him to find that out. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. And second temptation, we continue with in Matthew 4, 5 and 7, 5 through 7. And we'll begin with prayer. Be thankful and grateful for God, for his word, and for his patience with us, his guidance to us, his love for us that never fails. With that, let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, thank you for our time to be able to explore your word yet again. Time set aside during the day to hear you, see you, read you, so that we may understand you, comprehend you, come to know you. Your son told us that eternal life is knowing you. And so that's what we want to do, Father, is to know you more. And we continue to discipline ourselves to look into your word for that very reason. And we know that we will be met by you with the success of seeing more of you. We thank you so much for your faithfulness, Father. We ask that through your word we would be enlightened by your spirit. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So the idea that we're going to look at today switches a little. Uh, We've been looking at hermeneutics, which is basically we've been looking at the fact that from this temptation, we see that for believers who understand that they should live by the Bible or have to live by the Bible, by God's word, that Satan attacks our interpretation. He tries to get us to interpret wrongly, and that's how he's going to, uh, again, tempt us and So we looked at hermeneutics there, interpreting things in terms of context, in terms of um, comparing Scripture with Scripture or knowing that Scripture translates Scripture or interprets Scripture, and some some other things too. We didn't really go into all in that great detail, but uh, we, we all can become very good, every one of us, not just pastors, but we can all become very good at... Uh, interpreting the scripture with skill and expertise. Every, every believer can do that. And we are given the Holy Spirit to do that. Now, we're going to switch a little. And this gets to the Lord's response, sorry, which is up there. And this is the idea that when life gets hard, God is still with us. Simple, but so very important. When, guy, when sorry, life gets hard, God is still with us. Uh, we don't need to do things to test him, like a radar, right? You see that blip on the radar screen, you know, oh, there it is, right? We don't need that. And we're not to actually be looking for God by radar, if you will, which is really testing him. And that's, a, that's how Satan, in his false interpretation of, of Psalm 91, is trying to get the Lord to do. So when the devil took him, verse 5, into the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. We saw Psalm 91 yesterday, and that this is quoted exactly right. But the problem is, is that the interpretation is wrong. So Jesus said to him, on the other hand, again, I've said this a number of times, but I'll say it again. Jesus does not get involved in a debate about the meaning of Psalm 91. He goes to another scripture to interpret it. And this shows us that scripture is seamless, that it's inspired by God. And therefore, we can use other scripture to interpret scripture. It has to be appropriate, of course. And this is completely appropriate for this, of course, as the Lord knows. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This reference is to Deuteronomy 6.16. And he quotes it exactly. He doesn't summarize it. He quotes it exactly, which is a real plug for memorization. 
I know it's a lot of people don't want to do that. I think it's lost. It's been lost in, in Christianity. But some scriptures should be memorized, especially ones that pertain to areas of weakness or areas of where you're currently being tempted. You don't have to memorize it word for word, and it doesn't actually matter what translation you use. But that you know the words. And, you know, we can say we've memorized a passage, but memorized it so broadly that we've lost the real meaning of it. What we want to have when we learn a scripture is the very real meaning, which means all the words, at least the pertinent words. Here, this one's short. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, Deuteronomy 6.16 should be read in context. That's hermeneutics. All right? Everybody loves hermeneutics now, right? Read some before, read after. But see this in the context. In fact, we'll look at it in the context of the whole chapter of Deuteronomy 6, which is not very long. But the reference in Deuteronomy 6 is a reference back, actually, to the Exodus. And this is in Exodus chapter 17, where they tested the Lord when things got hard. And in Exodus 17, things got hard when the water started to get low. They're not out of water, but there's, you know, a good million, two million people and you need a, with animals, and you need a lot of water for that. They're in the wilderness. There's no, there's no water. So they're in a no-water place, and the water stores, their supply of water is getting low. They're looking in their jars and their jugs and their wines or their skins, water skins, and they're, you know, shaking that thing and saying, you know, we don't have much left. And they start to freak out. The result is that they doubt that God is even with them. They say, is the Lord with us or not? Did he bring us out here to kill us? And that's what. The context of this is, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, turns out to mean for us. Not that Satan wants us to jump off buildings, but that when times get hard, we start to doubt, is God with us or not? And if we doubt that, we're putting God to the test. So testing the Lord in Deuteronomy 6 was questioning God's providence and love. It was testing God's providence, what God providence God provides, God protects. That's really the meaning of Psalm 91, if you remember. And he loves us. And that love will never change. He loves Israel, which is actually in Deuteronomy 7. So here the testing of the Lord is questioning God's providence and God's love. Now, you don't have to actually see the water in the jars or the skins to know that you have enough water. Now, I'm using the reference to Exodus, but this refers to whatever it is that is missing in your life right now. What's missing? What seems to not be enough? Maybe it's money. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's whatever, you know. All of us have things that we could say, well, you know, it would be nice if I had a little more of that. Or it would be really nice and I desire it. We're talking about good things now. Like water is a good thing. We're talking about good things. And, and to know that I desire something good, but I don't have it right now. 
At least it's not abundant. I don't have to actually see it to be a reality in my life, to know that I have it. Meaning that God's going to fulfill that desire, isn't he? I say, well, say for instance, someone who's lonely and wants a relationship or wants, uh, wants to be married. I say, well, you know, I desire a, a good marriage and uh, a legitimate good marriage, and I, I don't have it. So God's going to fulfill that desire. Well, either he will the way that you expect it, or he's going to fulfill it the way that you don't expect it. And what I mean by that is he's going to fulfill the desire that you have that you think a marriage is going to fulfill. Or he's going to fulfill in you the desire that you have that you think that money or that health or that whatever is going to fulfill for you. He promises that I will do and give you all the desires of your heart. That's Psalm 37, verse 4. If we love the Lord, God will fulfill the desires of our heart. If we trust him, he'll fulfill the desires of our heart. That's all. It's a beautiful Psalm, Psalm 37. If God is going to fulfill that desire, then I don't, and I know that, then I don't have to actually see the water. Like, if we're all two million Jews and we all said, you know what, all of us just had our last drink of water and there is zero left, we should all be able to say, God is going to fulfill. We're not out of water. It looks like we are, but we're really not. And they weren't. Because God did the most unlikely thing. In Exodus 7, where does God get the water? From a rock. The least likely place that you would expect. That God flows to feed, sorry, to slake the thirst of two million people. That's a heck of a lot of water that's going to come out of a rock. It's not a trickle. It's going to be a torrent. And yet, that happened after they doubted. God brings the water anyway, after they doubted, after they tested him. And that's something that we have to see here as well. Because you and I are going to doubt, and then God's going to come through, and you're going to go, wow, God, we all do this. We've all done it. We say, wow, God really is faithful. And we almost say in the back of our heart, maybe we even say it out loud, I am never going to doubt him again. And then the next trial comes, and we freak out, and we doubt. God comes through again. And he does it, you know, rinse and repeat. He he repeats that cycle until we get it, until the time comes. And that's the end goal, that God is gracious and forgiving and gives us time and time and time again. We keep jumping off the building, and he keeps catching us. We jump off again, he catches us. We doubt and doubt, and he catches us. And then his goal is that we get to a point where we don't doubt anymore. Now, God has come through enough time that even through this rock head, I have come to believe that God is faithful. So doubting here is the Father's competence and dependability. Doubting the Father's competence and dependability. Let's go to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17, that's what it says in verse 7. 
Is the Lord with us or not? You know, we shake our heads at them. We're like, well, you know, we just started reading here back in chapter 5. And in came the first plague, and then the second plague, and then the third, up to the tenth, and then the Red Sea, and then the destruction of the Egyptians in the Red Sea, and then the bitter waters, and then the manna from heaven. Uh, Is God with us or not? And we're like, come on, stupid. And yet, how many times have we done this? Same thing. Then all, verse, verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sin. That's the name of the place. According to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, What are you quarreling with me for? That's so funny. It's like, what are you asking me for? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And they grumbled against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Why did you bring us out here to kill us? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they'll stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff, which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there at the rock at Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Here, that's the test. Is God with us? He, they tested the Lord. Notice that they're about, Moses says they're going to stone me in a minute if we don't do something. And it shows how agitated they are. This is not like a low-level grumble. This is not like a slight complaint about a little bit of thirst. These people are ready to kill their leader. And after all that they've been through. And it shows that they have this incredible lack of faith. And this is a warning to us all. It's not for us to point at them in the scripture and shake our heads at them and, tell, and say to ourselves, well, how stupid and how unfaithful they are. It's a warning to each of us that each of us, we, we must trust God completely through and through for everything and be courageous even when the water is almost gone. But take out water and fill in whatever you need to fill in there. Interestingly, the word Massah comes from the same root as test or tempt. So if we translated it literally, it's a play on words that you tested him at the test or the tempt or Massah. That's the name of the place, is the place of tempt. So now... Let's turn to Deuteronomy. So we get the story there. Now let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now I want to, and again, uh, sound hermeneutical principle, is what we want to do is read 
the, uh, the passages in context. And so the test was here that is the Lord with us, is the Lord among us or not? Exodus 17.7. Now, Deuteronomy is 40 years later. This is after the whole time through the wilderness. And Israel, most of those adults are dead, if not all of them are dead in the wilderness. And now Moses and all of them, well, Moses is not going to cross as we know because of his sin. But um, the children of Israel are going to cross the Jordan and go into the promised land. And Moses now is giving them his final message, which is the book of Deuteronomy. It's a long message, of course, yeah. And But yet, in this message, he's going to summarize their history. And in this message, which is Deuteronomy, Moses is going to repeat or summarize the law quite a bit, uh, stating the Mosaic law again to remind them of it and remind them of their history. And here he's going to remind them of their history as he tells them to love the Lord their God with all their hearts. This is truly the summary of the entire law. Now this uh, verse 1, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. O Israel. Now those first two verses are obey me, right? You're going to go into the land, and it is uh, incumbent upon you. It is required of you to keep my commandments, not just you, but your sons and your grandsons, so your whole family, you are under that requirement. And he says in verse 3, O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, your God, as the, Lord the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, Shema. Now, this is the Shema. Okay, that, that first word here is Shema. Shema, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. How often are you to speak of God's word? Uh, that's all day, right? And everything that you do. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. That's an image. I translated that, transliterated that into a phylactery, but we'll let that sit by the side for a bit. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Then it shall come about. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied. I will bless you. Then watch yourselves that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, if you're <coughs> speaking to one another in the framework, it doesn't mean that they're reciting scripture all day. 
but in the framework of the truth that comes from the Word of God that you and your family and everyone, as you get up, as you go to bed, as you go to work, as you come home, as you eat, as you, te- as you talk to your children, as you take the Word of God as, as actually like a, a frontal on your head and wrapped around your arms and on the doorpost of your house, meaning that your whole life is surrounded by God's Word. And, you know, people will call us Bible thumpers or something stupid like that. We're going to say, well, this is actually the truth of human life. It's not just a, it's not a churchy thing. It's a life thing. And all around me is God's wisdom. All around me is God's knowledge. All around me is the application of that wisdom and knowledge to my very life in everything I think and do and say. And it's wonderful. It's like being in heaven, but while I'm on earth. And God has blessed me. And then he says, don't forget me. Well, if I'm doing all that, how could I? Aha. <laughs> that becomes the problem. And it becomes a problem with believers too in our age. They forget God all the time. They think about him maybe on a Sunday. They think about him maybe once or twice. Maybe you prayed over a meal and you remembered God for a half a second and then you went about your day and the rest of your night or whatever and you had no God in it at all. You forgot him. We do it all the time. It must not be done. Because if it is done, then we reap what we sow. You sow to the world. You sow to yourself. You sow to your idols. That's what you get. So he says, watch yourself. And then in verse 13, you shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. For the Lord your God is in the midst of you, in the midst of you as a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. And you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. Okay, so we see here why it's important to see it in context. The context is the whole life of Israel in relationship and fellowship with God. And they should not ever put God to the test as at Massah. Well, we just, ha- we just read what happened at Massah, the place of testing. What happened? I said it right there. Is the Lord with us or not? Are we alone? Is he with us? And that's what we must never do. When Satan tells Jesus to jump, if Jesus jumps, Jesus is saying, is God with me or not? Well, I'm going to find out. I'm going to jump. And that would be, that is why this passage applies to what Satan is trying to do to him. I love here, too, that as he goes on in Deuteronomy 6, he speaks of their history in Egypt, and he also speaks of their Passover. And in the Passover, what happened at the Passover? Right? The angel of death passed over every house. What was their protection? What was the protection on the house that had their firstborn child saved? Can you imagine being a Jew that night Looking at your firstborn son, and you know what, what's on the door is the, the blood of the lamb. So this symbol is clear all throughout Scripture that that is Christ who is our protection. 
Christ is our providence, and it doesn't matter how bad things look. Christ is always our protection and providence, always. But can you imagine being a Jewish father or mother that night, and you have put the the blood on the doorpost, you came in, closed the door, and now you're waiting. And you're looking at your firstborn, your firstborn son. Is this going to work? I mean, come on, you've got to have a little bit of... It's got to be a pretty anxious night, let's put it that way. I, like, How many of them there are going, oh yeah, my firstborn, fine. As you hear screaming down the street from someone who just had their children die, and, and more and more the screams are all over Egypt of child after child who is being killed, and you're waiting, you're looking at your firstborn and waiting for what? God gives us wonderful opportunities to trust him. So, go to Romans chapter 8. And once you get there, keep going to Hebrews 4. Real quick, if you found Romans 8 on the way, you can put your finger in it like I did. So what is it God said in Deuteronomy 6? You shall fear the Lord. It's not only there, as we know. It's everywhere. It's all over the Old and New Testament. You shall fear the Lord. Look at Hebrews 4.1. Speaking of this exact same situation, which is the exodus. Therefore, let let us fear. The writer of Hebrews is applying the exodus to us. Let us fear if while a promise of remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. And there's so many promises to enter into his rest, this faith rest. He said, let us fear that we come up short. In other words, we doubt. He says, verse 2, for indeed we have had good news preached to us just as they also But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So what was the problem? Faith in those who heard. The faith was missing. Verse 3, For we we who have believed entered that rest, just as he has said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And that means like, so if his work is finished, When God says this is a place of rest, that is a guarantee. There's no more work needed to be done. It's all been done. And being all done, we have a place to rest. Now go back to Romans 8. So again, in line with our theme here, if I go back to that, the idea is that when life gets hard, God is with us. And when we um, feel trouble uh, or we experience it, we experience trouble, loss, pain, trial, they come upon us. And we have seen that they must. Remember in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul said, that's Paul's thorn in the flesh. When I'm weak, I'm strong. And therefore, as we've seen in this study, that we have to have trials and pain in our lives if we're going to actually grow. So it's a, it's a guarantee that we're going to have them. So when trouble, pain, 
trial come, that's when I start to question or anybody will start to question. When things are going well, there's not going to be questions. But when, when things are going are hard, there's going to be questions about the fact that God is with us. And that's why we have passages like this. Uh, multiple passages, and here another one, a great one, in Romans 8. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Like Satan is here. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For just as it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither angels nor princes, sorry, I am convinced, I skipped the line, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor other, any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a passage. So, you trust, did I not put that on there? You trust the one that you love and who loves you. It's true in human relationships. If somebody truly loves you and you truly love them, you trust them. You trust what they say. You trust that they'll do what they say. Now, you magnify that by a a quadrillion when it comes to God, and then we have nothing to fear. But we do fear. As you know, I'm a realist. We doubt, we fear, God comes through, we do it again, God comes through, we do it again. There has to come a place, and the faster we get there, the better. It's important for us to be disciplined at this, disciplined at our understanding and our prayer lives and everything that we do to make this as quickly a reality as possible, that we trust him so that we don't, I don't need proof. I don't need to jump. I don't need proof. Jesus doesn't need proof that the Father is near him. And so that's what I was getting at. I, I did love, I love this picture. I had it up before, but this, you know, this idea of, it's hard to imagine two million people walking through the wilderness. This kind of helps a little maybe. But it's tough. It's not an easy road. This is not like a weekend car trip with lots of good snacks. You know, I remember those fun road trips that you t- if you had fun road trips. A couple of road trips I took with my family were just, well, they were fun for about five minutes until we get out of the neighborhood <laughs> and whatever, your brother's picking on you or whatever. And it's, and anyway, this, it's same here, right? There's tons of people and animals following, following. And when are we going to get there? 
I mean, this is the ultimate. You got two million little kids in the back seat going, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? So, we're faced with uh, multiple tests and trials. I think, I think we have them every day because we have a flesh. And so, you might, we might call those little ones. And potentially very big, but you've got to deal with you. You know, in that Deuteronomy passage, we see the flesh. God says, obey my commands. Why do we have to be told with such force to obey his commands? Because of who we are, this flesh. Uh, there's the world. God says, don't worship their gods. When you go into the promised land, don't worship their gods. That's the world. And then there's this testing. Why would they test God? Well, Satan tested God. And so in Deuteronomy 6, you have the flesh, the world, and the devil. Those are our three enemies. And so we're going to go through many trials. And how we deal with them will depend upon our trust and our love of God. And what, this, what Satan is going to do is what we've been seeing the last few days is for any of us, well, for anyone who is not into the Bible, then he doesn't have to really do anything about your interpretation, does he? Does that make sense? I mean, you're not even reading it, so he doesn't have to worry about that. If you are actually trying to live your life by the Bible, this is what he's going to do. He's going to try and ruin your interpretation. And here's the kicker. Because the devil knows the Bible. He just snapped this Psalm 91 passage out of a huge book. And he says, throw yourself down. He knows the scripture. But he can't interpret it. And it's pretty obvious why he can't. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have a relationship with God. He doesn't love God. And therefore, and he has no faith. So how could he possibly interpret the scripture truthfully? He cannot. So while the devil knows the Bible, we have to make sure we know it better. Yeah? Know your enemy. And you've got to know the Bible better than he does. Now, I'm sure he's got it memorized easily. And if, he, if he's the super genius that we think he is, he's going to easily memorize, has, has it all memorized, and he can pluck it out like a computer program. But what he can't do is interpret. Because he doesn't have the, the, the equipment. He doesn't have faith. He doesn't have love of God. He doesn't have a relationship with God. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit. We have all of those things. And so while we can't know as much scripture as the devil and probably never will, what we can know is right interpretation. And he'll never know that. And therefore, you can be smarter than him. How does, they, how does Jesus defeat him in the wilderness? He knows scripture. He plucks the passages that he needs and he uses them. Uh, I liken also in our main path. First, he says, turn the stones into bread. That's a command. He uses an imperative. It's nice in the original Greek we can see that. That, that verb, turn them into bread or make bread, is in an imperative mood. It's a command. Throw yourself down. Command. 
And so he's commanding. And this shows us that when he tries to tempt, he's not going to be, you know, and I've been saying this, but I don't mind repeating myself. He's not going to say, you know, it'd be really, it'd be great if you were to doubt God right now. I mean, let's take it personal to us. Because there's another thing we have to understand that the devil's patient. He's playing chess with us. He's not concerned. I mean, if he can get you fast, then great. But he understands that it can take time. And he's willing to put in that time. In other words, to get you doubt a little bit in one one area or, or to uh, encourage us to have a secret sinful area. And he'll wait until that secret sinful area grows and then it starts to take over your whole Christian life. And that really does happen. That's what we have to be diligent. We have to be disciplined in order to see where in our lives that there are places that are really chinks or cracks in our armor. So he'll use a commandment. I've been mentioning the authority experiment. I kind of—I I haven't looked it up. I looked it up today, um, where you know it was uh, done in the '60s, where some guy at a university had gotten a bunch of participants, and he set up this experiment by which um, the the person in the experiment were told was told that someone on the other side of the curtain that they couldn't see was going to be asked questions. And if they got the question wrong, they were to press a button and zap them with an electric shock. And this, I forget what the, they, they fooled them into thinking what this experiment was for. But no one was getting shocked on the other side of the curtain. There was an actor over there, and the actor would scream. But <clears throat> uh, when they started the experiment, the first few questions if they got them wrong, they were to give them like, say, 100 volts. And if they continue to get the questions wrong, they would go up to like 150 and so on to 200. 100% of the participants all went up to 300 volts. They heard the person screaming on the other side, but the guy in the white coat said to them, no, you, you have to shock them. They got the answer wrong. And they did. And at 65% of them, two-thirds of the participants, went up to 450 volts. It must have been a riot because as they went up that high, when they pressed the button to the electric shock, the guy on the other side was screaming bloody murder. And it was just an actor. But two-thirds of the participants would act like to kill a person just because a man in a white coat told them that they had to. Satan uses commands. Right? The world says you have to do this. You have to participate. You have to be like us. The flesh says you have to do this. Come on, you have to do this. And while we're to, this is why it's hard. If it were easy, everybody would do it. But it's not. It's hard to say no to the flesh. And the flesh is so commanding. Satan is commanding. As I said, the devil is also patient. He's going to take his time with you. But God is as patient as well. 
And God has given us all that we need. We have the Word. We have the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts when we study God's Word so that we can be smarter than the devil. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, if you remember in 1 Corinthians, there was a man who slept with his father's father's wife. It was his stepmother and uh, had a sexual relationship with her. Paul told them to kick the man out of the church. They did. When the man repented, they wouldn't let him back in. They wouldn't forgive him. Paul writes in the second letter to the Corinthians, he says, let's not be ignorant of Satan's schemes. Forgive him. He, Paul calls the lack of forgiveness in the heart of the Corinthians a scheme of the devil. Right, so what does that show us? The devil will move in anywhere that he can. to say, well, I, I'm not going to forgive that person. And maybe, you know, according to the whole world system or whole world standard, that person doesn't deserve forgiveness. But when it comes to God, they absolutely do. And yet you or I uh, fail to forgive them or refuse to forgive them. You've just opened up a door for Satan to get in your heart with falsehood. Paul calls it being ignorant of his schemes. We must do all God's will. So, as we close, if the Lord throws himself down, our salvation is in jeopardy. He's not going to do it, as we know. You just have to read a little more, right? Context. No, I mean, like he's not going to throw himself down, and, uh, but if he did, our salvation would be in jeopardy. If he throws himself down, then we follow him. I actually was going to go with a picture of lemmings, you know, the lemmings that all jump off the cliff. If Jesus goes off the cliff, then we all have to go off. Because he's our Lord, our master. What he does, we do. So we all jump off. But he didn't jump off. And so instead of jumping off, what did he do? He stood, right? We saw in the pad. Satan made him stand at the pinnacle of the temple. He's standing. Satan tempts him. Throw yourself off. Quote scripture, Psalm 91. And Jesus says, again, it is written. And he uses his armor. Right? And in Ephesians 6, this armor, which we studied, not, I don't even know, less than a year ago maybe, that... Um, Stand firm against the devil. I'm missing a word there. I should know this passage by heart for sure. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. I thought it was schemes. Schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. Stand firm. Right? It's a breastplate, helmet, shield, sword. But the sword, right? The sword of the Spirit is the word of God. The shield is the shield of faith. What did Israel not have? Why did they fail in the wilderness? No faith. What does Jesus succeed at? Not only does he have faith, but he has the sword. 
and with his armor, he defeats the devil. And as you can see, it's not a physical fight. It's a spiritual fight. And he does beautifully. As he does, we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so our lives have to be disciplined. In our Bible study, in our prayer life, to be disciplined. We'll get to prayer again pretty soon. It's one of my favorite subjects. And, uh, you know, as we'll see, we'll, we're going to press on this just to get you ready. I mean, it's not coming for probably a month, but um, that we've got to discipline ourselves to pray. If you wait to pray when you just feel like it, you are going to have no real impactful prayer life at all. We've got to learn to pray in a disciplined manner. So your choices have to be disciplined in your reliance on God the Holy Spirit as you study His Word, as you pray. It's not all your discipline. It's a discipline on your part, and it's also God working through you as you trust Him. And we stand our ground. The more you do this, the stronger you get. And the stronger you get, the greater impact you're going to have in life, just like our Lord did. Our Lord did this through the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Um, He didn't use deity powers. He acted truly like a man. And we do the same. And if we do, we'll be just like Him. Not jumping off, but standing firm. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for Your Word, Your grace, Your mercy. Thank You for all things that are so true here that we've seen today. In Deuteronomy, in Exodus, not to test you, but to have faith in you. To take those promises you've given us and to believe them. To discipline our lives to know your word and to communicate. Be teachers of your word and not just hearers. Doers of your word and not just hearers. As we stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Thank you, Father, for this awesome privilege, which is the spiritual life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.